Well, we have uh, just completed uh, a string of parables where Jesus has been challenging the religious leaders in Israel, and now we turn to their response to his challenge, and you can find that in Matthew chapter 22, and we're looking at verses 15 to 22, page number 983 of the Pew Bibles, Uh, should be one in the pew back right in front of you, as they typically always are. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then. What do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and we confess that uh, Jesus makes a very um, interesting and profound statement in this passage. And as always, but especially this morning, we need your grace that we might understand what Jesus means, uh, not only for the Pharisees he's speaking to at this moment, uh, but to us today, God, that we might render properly uh, to those who are in authority uh, what is their due. Um, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we all uh, would love to live under a government where we're free to experience life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Um, But my question is, what is life? What does it mean to be truly alive? What's, What's the experience of being alive? What does it feel like? And what is liberty? What does it mean to be free? Is liberty really getting to go and do whatever I want to go and do whenever I want to go and do it? Is that true freedom? And what is happiness? The Jewish people at the time of Jesus, they had their vision of life and liberty and happiness. And for them, it was getting out from underneath the Roman oppression. It was being free to practice their religion as they understood it. But Jesus comes along and he's got this completely different vision for life and liberty and happiness. He's always talking about turning from sin and believing in him and entering the kingdom of heaven. 
If we recall from the Sermon on the Mount, he, he, addressed, he addressed happiness very specifically. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn and the meek. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the pure in heart, and even the persecuted. And the religious leaders in Israel, well, they, they don't like his vision very much. They were so focused on earthly freedom and earthly power, and they were missing the true life and freedom and happiness available to them through putting their trust in Jesus, through believing in Jesus and entering the kingdom of heaven. In our passage this morning, these two different visions for life come into conflict. And so first, we're going to see how the Pharisees attempt to trap Jesus followed by the response of Jesus, and then finally a teaching from Jesus. And that's our outline this morning. So uh, how is what they're saying to Jesus here an attempt to trap him? Uh, Well, if you've been with us through our study of the book of Matthew, it's probably become quite apparent to, to you, as it is to me, that the religious leaders here in Israel are totally blind to who Jesus really is. They've, they've heard him teach. They know what he said. They've even witnessed his miracles, but they are not convinced. And right before our passage this morning, Jesus has given them this string of parables, and he's showing them that they're unrepentant sinners— who hate God, they're not producing any fruit of true good works in their life, and therefore they are not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So they don't like Jesus. Meanwhile, the crowds, the crowds love Jesus. He's healing their sick. He's curing their diseases. He's casting out demons. He's, He's teaching with a kind of authority they never heard before. And they're persuaded that maybe just maybe this person is powerful enough to completely free them from the Romans. So Matthew tells us, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. Now the Pharisees were a group of lay leaders. They were businessmen. Some of them were priests. And they were intensely focused on purity. They distilled the Old Testament down to 613 laws that they believed that if they could somehow get everyone in Israel to keep all of these laws, then God would bless them, that their their hope of being free of the Romans, that, that God would give them that because of their faithfulness, and they could rule themselves again under God's law and hopefully one day God's rightful king. But of course, they were happy to rule in that king's place until he came. And so they're afraid Jesus is going to mess all that up. He's challenging their authority. He's threatening their power and their position with the people of Israel. They're envious of him. And yet he's got enough popular support to cause a lot of trouble. And we already know they've wanted Jesus dead for a long time, ever since back in Matthew chapter 12. We were told just in the previous chapter that they wanted to arrest him, but they're afraid of the crowds. And so they decide to ask him a question that will either discredit him with the crowds or get the Romans to arrest him. So that's what they're plotting, that's what they're planning, and here's the execution of that plan. Matthew tells us, they sent their disciples to him, 
along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinions, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So they send their disciples, which is basically the college students who are stuttering, studying underneath them at the time, along with the Herodians, who were apparently a group that supported uh, the leadership of the Herodian dynasty. So it was started by King Herod, but now uh, King Herod's sons were over it. And we don't know why they sent their disciples. Maybe they thought Jesus would be a little bit more open to hearing from younger and more impressionable people. And at first they flattered Jesus. Jesus, you're so truthful. You teach the ways of God. You don't care what anyone thinks about you. You're not trying to impress anyone. All things that are very true, actually, except they didn't believe a single one of them. And this is their trap, okay? We're going to send our disciples with the Herodians to flatter Jesus and then to ask him whether or not it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. Now, why is that a trap? Well, because every Jew hated the fact that they were under occupation by the Romans. They hated the fact that the Romans made them pay taxes to Caesar. And the tax they're talking about here is a poll tax. They were basically being taxed by Rome for the right to live in their own country. It's one thing to pay sales tax or custom tax or duty tax, but it's super annoying if another foreign power is taxing you for the right to breathe your own air. And now we all pay taxes for the right to breathe our own air here in America, but we pay those taxes to the American government. And we can debate whether those taxes are fair or oppressive, but it would be intensely more frustrating if somehow China or Canada was taxing us for the right to breathe our own air. Being Americans then, we can understand how unthinkable it would be to have another government for, from somewhere else taxing us, and that's the situation the Jewish people were in. But they weren't Americans. They, they actually had more reason to be frustrated. They were God's chosen nation. They were under God's direct rule. He had given specifically to them His word and His law and His commands. Clearly, God intended them to govern themselves. This is what God had told them back in Deuteronomy. He says, You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you, who is not your brother. And here they are, with foreigners over them. And so some actually believed, because of this verse, that it was, it was breaking God's commands to pay taxes to Caesar. So if Jesus says it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, he's going to lose the crowds. But if he says it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, well, then the Romans are not going to put up with that. He's way too popular, way too influential to go around telling people they don't have to pay taxes. And that's why the Herodians are there. Now, the Herodians, we don't know a ton about them other than the fact that they support the, the dynasty of King Herod. Which, which was started by the Romans. Actually, the Roman Senate 
put King Herod the Great in place as the king of Israel. He was basically the puppet king of Israel, controlled by Rome. And then when he died, uh, his kingdom was divided up between his three sons. And one of his sons, Archelaus, was such a terrible ruler. Uh, He was placed over Judea, which is where Jerusalem is at. He was such a terrible ruler that after two years he was removed, and the Romans decided to replace him with a governor. Well, fast forward a few years, guess who the governor is who's on uh, that particular uh, throne right now? Pontius Pilate. So one can imagine the Herodians would like to restore Judea back to uh, the family of Herod, uh, but they're not going to do that by by creating an uprising. They're going to do that by trying to win back Rome's favor. And so if they hear Jesus say that it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, the Herodians are here to go and report that back to Rome. So it kind of seems like Jesus only has two options here. Either he's a Roman sympathizer who will alienate the crowds, or he's a revolutionary that needs to be dealt with by Rome. Now there's one more element here that I'd like to point out real briefly. Notice all the words of flattery that they use. You are truthful. You teach the way of God. You don't care about opinions or appearances. Well, no matter how Jesus answers this question, at least the way they see it, there's no way he can't answer, or there's no way he can't end up looking to someone like he doesn't teach the truth, like he doesn't teach God's rules, or like he's uh, clearly saying one side or the other in order to, you know, make somebody happy with him. Okay, so they've got him totally and perfectly set up, at least in their mind, Okay. So what is Jesus going to do? Well, here's the response of Jesus. Now, before we look at the response of Jesus, there's a couple things that I'd like to point out. First, Jesus is about to be crucified on a cross. He's about to be beaten, flogged, spit on, and then drugged naked through the streets of Jerusalem. And then he's about to die one of the most painful deaths human beings have ever thought up. Okay? So he knows that's about to happen to him. So in no way is his answer meant to be evasive. In no way is his answer meant to be witty or an attempt to please everyone. He's not trying to find the middle way in order to save himself. He knows he's going to die. Second, the Pharisees are starting this conflict because they want to get rid of Jesus, right? They want him either to be uh, discredited with the crowds or um, taken care of by the Romans. And they think they've got him trapped. But Jesus is allowing this conflict because he has a purpose for it too. See, we all hate conflict. None of us like it. But it's actually one of the best opportunities to teach. And so Jesus allows this question to come because he's got something really important he wants us to know. Okay? So here's his response. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So the first thing he does is he calls them out. So he knows their flattery uh, is blasphemy, because he is God and because they don't mean it. He knows they've got evil in their hearts. He knows their motives. He knows they're insincere, and he doesn't care a bit what they think of him. And so he just calls them hypocrites right away to get that out of the way. And then he asks them to show him the coin. Now, the poll tax 
was paid using Roman, a Roman denarius. So even though the Jews could use their own coins within Israel, they had to pay the poll tax with Roman money. And not only that, but most people had Roman coins, right? It was the currency everyone used to participate in this broader economy of the Roman Empire. So it's not like you could really get away from it. So when he asks for a coin, they're able to produce one very quickly. I think it would be hilarious if one was in one of their pockets, um, but we don't know where they got it. But you get the sense that they were able to find one very quickly because these coins were plentiful. And then he asks them, whose likeness and inscription is this? So what does it look like and what does it say? Well, the likeness on the coin uh, was from the current emperor of, um, uh, of Rome, Tiberius Caesar. Okay? And here's the inscription on the coin. It said this, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And then if you took the coin and turned it over, it said Pontifex Maximus which means high priest. Well, you can't really get more blasphemous than that. By minting and distributing this coin, Caesar is expecting and demanding worship, right? Just another reason why a Jew would hate being forced to use a coin like that and why why you would hate to be forced to pay a coin like that back to the Romans. It was like this perfect reminder of the fact that they were under subjection to the Roman government. And so after Jesus asks, whose likeness and inscription is this? After they respond, it's Caesar's, he says this, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Which takes us to our last point. What does Jesus mean by this? Okay? Now remember, Jesus is not trying to thread the needle in between their either-or question. He's not trying to be witty. He's not being evasive. He's taking this opportunity to teach us something incredibly important. And what is that? Well, here's what he wants us to know. First, we have a legitimate duty to whatever government God places in authority over us. We also have a legitimate duty to God. And what Jesus wants us to consider here is what is the duty that we have to God, and what is the duty that we have to government, and what is the relationship between the two, okay? So what do we owe Caesar? One more thing. Notice Jesus is not talking about what kind of government we should have. He's saying nothing about the ideal government. He's teaching us how to live in whatever government we find ourselves in, okay? So, what do we owe to Caesar? Clearly, Jesus understands us, or wants us to understand, that we owe something to whatever government he placed us under, and we should render what we owe to that government, okay? Even if that government is Caesar. Even if we didn't choose Caesar as our authority. Even if... Caesar came and took our country by force and put Roman soldiers on our streets to make us comply. Even in that scenario, there is an obligation that we have to that government. Why? Because these are Caesar's coins. He minted them. They have his likeness and his words written on him, on them. 
And his coins are the reasons, the reason why they had cheap, efficient international trade. The Jewish economy was growing by trading their almonds and their olive oil and their figs all over the empire because Caesar gave them this coin that made it so easy to do that. And I, I, could, well, I would imagine the Pharisees were getting very wealthy off that. And not only that, but Caesar built roads all over the empire, which allowed them to travel and trade their goods. And Caesar's troops were keeping all those roads safe. In fact, Caesar's troops were in Jerusalem this very day, keeping them safe, so the Pharisees could ask Jesus this question. And whether they wanted to believe it or not, the reason other nations weren't attacking them right now is because the Romans were occupying them. Because whether Caesar knew it or not, he is doing what God commands him to do. God has established Caesar for a purpose. Listen to what Paul tells us. For he, Caesar, or the government, is God's servant. Caesar is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So give Caesar back his coin, because he's serving God. Don't give him the worship he's demanding on that coin. Just give him back his coin. And when God told the Israelites not to set a foreign king over them, he was telling them not to intentionally choose a foreign king for themselves. But Caesar is their ruler right now. Not because they chose him for themselves, but because God put Caesar over them. Proverbs 8.15, God says this, By me kings reign and rulers decree what is just. God is the one who puts rulers over us. In the book of Daniel, we read this, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. But don't think that somehow God sets up these kings and then walks away and is, is not in control of anything they decide to do after that. Proverbs also tells us this, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So God is turning the hearts of every ruler in this world wherever he will. That includes Joe Biden. That includes Donald Trump. Nothing happens outside of God's control. So as the Apostle Paul, who also lived under Caesar, says, therefore whoever resists the governing authorities resists what God has appointed. So, whatever government we are under has a legitimate claim on us. God has put that government in power to serve him and accomplish his will. And as Christians, we should seek to be good citizens, whether we find ourselves under a king, a republic, a democracy, or a dictatorship. Why? Peter tells us, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So when we live as Christians, obeying God's law, doing good as God defines it, submitting to the authority that God has placed over us, there's nothing anyone can say about us. 
We can be confident of that. So this doesn't mean that we obey the government if they ask us to deny our faith or to sin against God by breaking his commandments. That would be to render to Caesar what is God's. This doesn't mean we stand by and let a government sin against its people. Caesar doesn't get to decide what belongs to Caesar. There may come a time when out of love for our neighbor, we must stand up to a tyrannical government. We should oppose a government that values one citizen over another because of the color of their skin. We should oppose a government that keeps people in poverty on purpose to maintain its power. We should oppose a government that promotes putting to death children in the womb. We should oppose a government that promotes mutilating the sexual organs of psychologically vulnerable people. Notice I didn't just say children. I mean people. We like to draw the line at 18 there. But the problem with any government is that it wants ultimate worship. It wants us to look to it for life and liberty and happiness. It wants us to put our hope in it for peace and justice and equality and wealth and abundance and human flourishing. And no government can do any of that for us. We don't look to government to solve all these problems. These are problems inside of the human heart. These problems are solved only when the citizens of a country are living under the lordship of Jesus Christ in their own individual lives. You see, we think the problems are solved politically in our country, primarily sometimes. But all the problems we see in our country are solved by preaching the gospel, by meeting in a revolutionary way every Sunday morning to hear God's word preached and to partake of the sacraments. By realizing that people are on the way to eternal destruction and we have the one message that can not only save them, but can make them into the very best citizens of our country. And the reason I think it matters so much to us, the reason it mattered so much to the Jews back then to find out where the line is, What do I have to do to obey Caesar and when should I stand up and fight? It's because we've put too much hope in the government. And hope is something that we render to God. We either have too much hope in the government God has over us now or the one we think should replace it. That's why, you know, right now, Those watching Fox News, their hope is in the government that's going to replace this one. Right now, those watching CNN, their hope is in the government that they have right now. But the job God has given government is to punish evil and reward good as God defines it. And that's it. So during COVID, you knew I wasn't going to be able to get through this sermon without mentioning COVID, right? During COVID, 
No matter what side of the vaccine and mass debate we were on, we all focused, I believe, way too much on what we were required to render Caesar or not. When the real question we should always be asking ourselves is, am I even rendering to God what is God's? Because what do I owe God? Absolutely everything. My whole life, all of my hope, all of my hope. We owe him never-ending, constant thanks and praise for every single breath he chooses to give us. We owe him worship. Why? Because we bear his image. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, So whether you eat or drink, the most mundane thing possible, right? Or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Imagine if we watched TV to the glory of God. I wonder if there's certain shows we would decide to turn off. Imagine if we engaged in our hobbies for the glory of God. Loved our wives for the glory of God. Submitted to our husbands for the glory of God. Honored and obeyed our parents for the glory of God. Served our employer for the glory of God. Used our sexuality and our possessions and our words all for the glory of God. No other gods before us. Never using God's name without complete honor and respect. Bearing the name of Christian as someone who lives to represent the goodness and the holiness of God. Not coveting. Being content with the life God has given us, including the government he has placed over us. The fifth commandment tells us to honor our father and mother. And in our tradition, and I think truthfully, uh, this commandment should be understood to include honoring all authority God has placed over us. So I want us to hear how the Heidelberg Catechism deals with this subject. What is God's will for you in the fifth commandment? Answer. That I honor, love, and be loyal to my father and mother and all those in authority over me. That I submit myself with proper obedience to all their good teaching and discipline. And also that I be patient with their failings. For through them God chooses to rule us. That means in the home we submit to and honor, love, and are loyal to our parents. At work, we submit to honor, love, and are loyal to our boss. At church, we submit to honor, love, and are loyal to our pastors and our elders. When? When they're being evil? No. No, we submit with proper obedience to their good teaching. But we're also patient with them. And they're bad. Because through them, God chooses to rule us. And it takes wisdom to know the difference. But we must be the kind of person who is mostly concerned with rendering to God what is God's to know the difference. Here's what's interesting about the Jewish people here. They were all paying this tax. As much as they hated it, every single one of them was paying it. Why? Because if they didn't pay it, 
the Romans were going to arrest them and take away all their possessions. And Jesus was telling them and us to pay it, not because we fear Caesar, but because we fear God, because he is ruling us through them. And so when they heard Jesus' response, they marveled and they left him and went away. There was nothing they could say. And the reason there was nothing they could say is because they were paying the tax already. Whether they wanted to or not, they were rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's, but no one was rendering to God everything they owed him. And we can spend a lot of time trying to figure out when to be patient with our government and their failings and when to hold them to account, which we should do. But we must begin by rendering to God the things that are God's. On that coin was the likeness of Caesar and the words of Caesar, but standing in front of them was Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that he is the image of the invisible God. And the writer of the Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. There's no way that coin had the exact imprint of Tiberius Caesar. But Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. And so standing before them was the only human being who ever displayed the perfect likeness of God. And he didn't just have God's words inscribed on him. He is the word of God. He is the son of God. He is the ultimate pontifex maximus, high priest. And if you've seen Jesus, you have seen the father. And yet they rejected him. They feared Caesar enough to pay his tax, even though they hated it. And though they might be breaking God's law, they still paid it. Because they were afraid of Caesar, but they didn't fear God enough to fall at the feet of his son and worship him, even though he was standing right there in front of him. In fact, in just a few days, they will hand him over to the Romans to be crucified. And what are they going to cry out? We have no king but Caesar. And Jesus will let it happen to pay the penalty for their sin if only they would repent and believe. And it's the person who repents of their sin and puts their trust in Jesus who truly has life. This is the person who has true liberty. He is free from sin, has become a slave of Jesus Christ, is ruled by Jesus through his word, by his Holy Spirit. That's freedom, my friends. That is so free that we can have life and liberty and happiness in a cell. So put your hope in God, not the government. Yes, there may be times in life when we need to sort out when it is time to resist the government. But in the meantime, let's be good citizens right where God has placed us. Let's give honor, love, loyalty, submission, and obedience to all their good teaching. Let's be patient with their failings, but mostly let's fall at the feet of Jesus and worship the one who bears the exact imprint of God's nature, who's revealed God's word to us, and who has purchased us. And we belong to him because he purchased us with his very own blood. Let's pray.
Father, we come before you and we recognize that the call of this passage is to see just how much we owe you. That we owe you our whole lives. We owe you everything. And that relativizes everything else we owe. We know that when we serve those in authority over us, that you're ruling us through them and we're serving you by serving them. God, we need great wisdom because this life is not perfect. You know when it's right to, to resist and when it's right to submit. We beg and plead for great wisdom as we move forward. And we thank you for Jesus who died for our sins, who is the one in whom we can put all of our hope. It is his name we pray. Amen.